The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Please let me know if you have a hard time hearing me. So we're finishing up a series of talks on this uh, very powerful, often destructive force of aversion. And for those who haven't been um, here the last few weeks when we've been talking about aversion, the first week we reflected on how aversion is such a natural, omnipresent force in our world in terms of our own hearts, but also just part of nature, really part of the fabric of nature. So the problem isn't aversion. In a way, aversion is neither good nor bad or anger or, you know, the appropriate natural response to what's painful in life. That's just part of the fabric of living beings to have a response to pain. In a way, in this level, this basic level of aversion, you know, pain and the response, it's just the interaction of a mind, a sensitive mind, with this information. This is painful. And then a sensitive mind responds to that information of pain, discomfort, unpleasantness. And the problem arises when the mind is sensitive to pain, discomfort, unpleasantness, and then constructs a story about somehow being put upon by the pain, by the discomfort or unpleasantness, and then proliferates around that story about wishing I didn't have this pain. How can I destroy this pain, make it so it never happens again? And there's these cycles or these unfolding, forever unfolding patterns, reactive patterns around our exposure, our inevitable exposure to what's unpleasant. So this is what we're trying to, like in order to really address aversion in our lives and what a central role it has and have some insight about it, we have to make the distinction between the inevitable process of bumping up against what's unpleasant and painful, uncomfortable in life, and this secondary pattern that involves our mind constructing ideas, stories about how much we don't like it, how much we wish it weren't this way. And to begin to see the two as distinct, you know, like having an unpleasant experience, experiencing pain is one thing, and having a problem with it is another thing. Some of you have heard, I'm sure, this story that I repeat. I think I heard it first from a talk by Ed Brown, a well-known Zen teacher, but i just sort of been making the circles in Buddhist circles. Uh, kind of a made-up story about the Buddha meeting a farmer who has lots of problems. And the Buddha says, basically, just to shorten the story, 
where everybody has lots of problems. And I can't help you. And even if I could help you with your problems, you'd probably just get another one anyway. And the farmer's about to leave frustrated, like, well, what is this guy good for? And then the Buddha says, but I might be able to help you with your additional problem. You know, besides all these problems, you have one additional problem. And that I can help you with. So the farmer was sort of interested. Well, what problem is that? He said, well, I can help you with the problem you have having all of these problems. And this is the thing. Like, we bump naturally as human beings as a mind that's sensitive to our environment, our internal environment, our external environment. We're bumping up against painful experience, things that we don't like. Now, that nobody can do anything about. You know, as long as we're alive, sensitive, we're going to bump up against difficult experience. But what a spiritual practice can do, and an authentic path of wisdom can do, it can transform how we relate to having difficult experience. How we can relate to aging without creating suffering, how we can relate to loss without creating suffering, how we can relate to insult without suffering, let alone sort of the ordinary physical pains of being too cold or too hot, restless or tired, sick, around irritating sounds. I mean, we are so exposed as a sensitive being to so many unpleasant experiences. So this possibility of going beyond having problems with pain, having problems with the way that it is, the way that it is being a sensitive human being. And we begin to understand, so the path isn't about um, getting angry, getting attached to the idea of it shouldn't be this way. I need to control. I need to distract and deny. I need to, you know, fix my life, destroy what's problematic for me. So that is what we call hostility, the identification with pain, a identification with our reactive pattern with pain. And we become the one who hates, the one who's angry, the one who wants to destroy, the one who wants to give up, the one who wants to deny. Or we might think this is better, but it's really the same thing. We can become the one who thinks I should be angry, the one who doesn't want to be angry, the one who thinks anger is bad, which is just in a way, internalizing the anger. We're angry at being angry. We're angered, angry at being triggered. And we don't think it should be that way. We don't think people should be angry in this world. They should be kind. And so that suppression is its own kind of violence, its own kind of hostility. So non-contention, non-aversion, kindness, love, it doesn't mean that we're not experiencing pain. We are experiencing pain. And we're not in denial of that pain. We're not pretending that that pain doesn't hurt in life, the discomfort. But we're also not making it more than what it is. 
We're not denying what it is, and we're not making more than what it is, making it more than what it is. And this is what we call love. It doesn't isn't like that romantic version of love or kindness that we sometimes think about or hear about in songs that are about love or poems that are about love. You know, we think about love as some transported state. But in Buddhism, love and non-aversion, it's really the same thing. It's the, the experience of being intimate with the way it is. So when life is painful, then love means we're intimate with the pain without reacting, without thinking it shouldn't be this way, and without suppressing the pain, feeling like the pain is a mistake, I should be experiencing it, I'm going to just pretend like it's not here. But really letting it in. This is what we mean by non-contention, non-aversion, kindness. Any fixation that pain is bad or that I shouldn't be bothered by pain, any solid fixed idea around pain is blinding for the mind. We lose our wisdom, basically, and we start reacting in habituated ways that, in terms of pain, tend to be quite destructive. I mean, when we think through human history, how much destruction has arisen because human beings haven't been able to be with their pain. Maybe they're feeling, we're feeling a little insecure. I mean, think about what we do when we're feeling insecure. Think about how many times we've lashed out in harmful, hurtful ways toward our friends because we're feeling insecure. I mean, I see this all the time in my relationship with my wife. I mean, hopefully not in really, you know, powerfully toxic ways, but ways that are seem off where I'm feeling a little needy or a little insecure. And I'll just, you know, little zingers, just little things that I'll say or not say, or ways of closing down or ways of acting out. You know, maybe after <clears throat> the uh, attacks on 9-11, you know, maybe there was a lot of fear in this country. And maybe as a nation, we acted out that fear in all kinds of ways that have been destructive. I mean, that's certainly one way to describe what's happened over the last 10 years, when people, individuals or groups of people, feel insecure, feel threatened, and they don't know what to do with that painful feeling of being insecure, being threatened, we tend to act out or suppress it. Both are destructive in their own ways. Last week I talked about how to transform our relationship with pain, with what is triggering the destructive patterns of aversion and hostility and hate and you know, closing down, we have to begin to not be confused by the external, the sort of momentum we have around pain, the external pattern, habituated pattern. We have to be able to trace back to what's underneath it, basically to go from the gross to the subtle. And uh, you know, this isn't easy for us because so much of our pattern in life is to 
focus to fixate on what's external. So I might be, you know, really disturbed in a subtle way, but almost immediately I'm going to look for something big and external to explain to myself why I'm feeling this pain. We don't tend to look at the pain itself as important information. We tend to want to look at the meaning we ascribe to the pain. We've constructed some meaning about the pain, and we're very used to looking at that. This is what's going on. But in a way, in, in this practice, this path of going from the gross to the subtle, being mindful of what's happening in the subtle way, like what we feel, what's arising in the heart and the mind, we pay less attention. It's less important what we're telling ourselves is happening and more important what we're actually feeling in the moment. And in particular, the pain, the discomfort, the uneasiness, the unsettledness, or maybe the peace, the calm that we're feeling in that moment. That's more relevant information than the story I might tell myself about what's important now or what's going on or what I should do. And doesn't it make sense from your own experience that we're much more dependent on our ongoing story or explanation about what's happening, what I should do, who I am, who you are, than we are, than we are uh, sort of devoted to feeling, to knowing this more subtle information, this sort of more raw data. It's like unfiltered data. You know, our stories feel like an honest interpretation. Okay, I've already done the work. You know, I've already interpreted what's going on, and I've got the answer, Mark, so don't, you don't need to look. You can just, you know, I've got, it all, I've got the memo all written for you, you know? Take it and run, and that's what we normally do. We take the memo and we run. We don't actually, in the moment, moment by moment, do the sort of raw data collection. Oh, 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 this is how I feel. This is what the heart is saying right now. Ah, oh, you know, there's this subtle, pervasive feeling of insecurity or this subtle, pervasive feeling of peace or calm or whatever it might be in that moment loneliness. And it's the not understanding, the not connecting and opening and receiving this basic moment-to-moment -moment information from the heart that leads us to live what we would call, in this tradition at least, deluded lives. You know, lives, actions that arise out of ignorance. The ignorance of not knowing this fundamental information, the fundamental information of the heart, moment by moment. And the thing is, the previous moment isn't relevant anymore. The only information that's relevant is how it is right now. So we have to uh, develop an ongoing, a, a continuous respect, devotion to how it is. So more important, like when we're interacting with a friend or in a difficult business meeting or 
dealing with family issues that are intense. Of course, on one level, it is relevant, you know, like what we're, what our plan is, what we've done before, and how that works. So all that sort of information, that conceptual information or the information at the level of the story, it's not that it's completely irrelevant. It's just that it's much more relevant how the heart is right now. If we're unaware, it's like, you know, 80, 90, who knows, 99% of the important data is just not part of the equation in terms of how we're responding or reacting in the moment. We're basically reacting based on some interpretation, which is based on some, generally, some superficial appraisal of what's going on. So in Buddhist practice, you know, we're, we really emphasize this returning to what's subtle, what's here and now and subtle. And it's only subtle, it's not actually in some absolute sense subtle. It's simply subtle because our strong, strong habit is to notice what's external and to notice what's conceptual. It's not our habit. We haven't trained the mind to notice what's non-conceptual, like what's immediate and raw and here and now. We're just not in the habit of noticing that unless we train the mind. We almost immediately respect and go to whatever we're telling ourselves is happening, the ongoing dialogue or story we have in the mind about who we are and what's happening. So when we feel a lot of anger, it's important to recognize the sort of, you know, the look, the just to catch very quickly the patterns that are familiar, the angry, aversive, fearful patterns that we have. But it's not so that we think about it. Like, why am I angry at this person? Because that on that level, of thinking about why we're angry, why we're resentful, why we're closing down, why we feel this is unfair, that is part of the missing the point. Like that, that is the unproductive pattern. One person I studied with, an Italian teacher, Corrado Penza, he said once in a, in a retreat I was on, he said, mindfulness is an obstacle to our well-greased patterns of attachment and ignorance. So mindfulness interrupts our well-greased addiction to thinking about things. And of course, there are less skillful ways of thinking about our anger and more skillful ways of thinking about our anger. So of course, it's better to be thinking about our anger in more skillful ways than thinking about our anger in less skillful ways. But thinking about anger, even in skillful ways, is still, in a, in, a, in a deep sense, missing the point. We want to go from thinking about anger, even in really skillful ways, like, like an example of thinking about anger in skillful ways is, well, this person is probably trying to do, I really hate this person, I'm really upset about this person, but he or she is probably doing the best they can. You know, and probably in the great scheme of things, Mark, it can't be other than what it is. You know, and we're sort of, 
parroting back all the good things, or, you know, all the wise things we've read and heard over the years. And that's, you know, relatively skillful to be thinking about this angry situation, this pain. But what we're not doing because we're thinking about it, because we're telling ourselves these sort of seemingly wise things, what we're not doing in that moment is noticing, oh, oh, it hurts. You know, we're going from the story and we realize right now the mind, the body is bound up in some way. It's tight in some way. It's hot, burning in some way, reactive in some way. And, and this is the important thing, it hurts like this. It's the not recognizing when the heart, the mind, whatever you want to call it, this, it's the not recognizing that this hurts that keeps us ignorant and acting in ways that are counterproductive. Because our actions are missing this vital point, this vital piece of information. If we're hurting, but we're not directly in the moment knowing that we're hurting, we're missing the most important piece. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I think I did on Sunday in one of the talks. You know, think about the intractable, seemingly intractable situation in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis. You know, just as sort of the archetypal, unsolvable problem, seem, seemingly. And you now clearly, the leaders, probably every single citizen on one level or another are hurting. You know, the tension and the sort of unworkableness of the situation is probably awake, if not in everybody's heart, in most people's hearts, right? Now, can you imagine the powers that be or people just in general, if they were deeply, deeply connected to their pain of their frustration, the pain of their hatred and anger, revenge, feelings of revenge. So not caught in the ideas of revenge or the history of one side terrorizing the other side, but we're really right there in the raw, direct experience of feeling vulnerable, of feeling the loss, losses that they've experienced, of feeling the the frustration and the this kind of existential uh, um, violation of like, how do we get out of this hole? You know, that, that, that feeling like no light. If people were really willing to touch that pain and they sat across from each other, met each other, both individuals or both groups deeply connected to their pain, they could begin a very real, authentic conversation about what to do. But if we're not aware of the pain, but aware in this sort of this sort of certain way, like the, I am certain these people deserve to suffer. I am certain that they deserve revenge. They deserve, you know, to be whatever harmed. Well, you can bet. <laughs> there's not going to be any resolution to the conflict. And you can just experiment with this in your own little interactions. 
you know, when you're with somebody and there's a conflict and there's hate and ideas about feeling justified in hate or justified and throwing this person out of our heart, that if we take the time to really connect with the actual ouch or pain or weight or fear or loneliness or whatever betrayal in our own heart, but not the story, but the actual pain of it. And to realize that this person, we don't even have to do this. This will naturally arise, this recognition that this person also has a profoundly sensitive heart. In fact, all living beings have a profoundly sensitive heart. That's what, in the, in the very essence, that what, that's what a mind is. It's profoundly sensitive to what is. And when we, when we connect on that level of being this sort of sensitive heart, that's why I loved, I mentioned this before, you know, I love some of, I grew up as a Catholic, pretty serious Catholic family, and, and uh, we had our statues. I used to love my statues in my bedroom of St. Francis and St. Joseph and like, the Virgin Mary. And a lot of the statues I remember as a child, you know, they, they had the heart sort of sitting on the outside of the, the body, you know, the sort of raw heart. And it was always such a striking image, both in the, fo in the paintings and in the statues. And, but I, on some level, I really appreciated that exposure. Like, there's a certain power in being vulnerable, right? A, a certain power in being willing to realize our actual sensitivity. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, and it's also in the Dhammapada, maybe I'll read that section, you know, if we're in conflict that we are aware that the person we're in conflict with in in a kind of great scheme of things is, is going to be dead pretty soon. Well, it's, it's not so easy to be really hateful. This is a famous passage from the Dhammapada collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. Right? So if we're on the level of the story, the Buddha is saying, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So hatred depends. That toxic end or expression of aversion, hatred and anger, it depends on the continuing, the continuation of thinking, the continuation of the story. And then the passage goes on. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. Many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. So you can see, we can just experiment. You know, like if you have a chronic conflict with a sibling or a lover or a friend or somebody at work, you know, you can cultivate the perception of this person's life soon to end and not knowing when it's going to end. I put out a, a little picture of Wendell, who's, I don't know, 27 or 28, who died suddenly on Sunday night or Sunday morning, Saturday night, uh, unexpectedly. 
So we don't know. So the next person you're in conflict with, you know, they could drive home and die on the way home. It happens, of course. And it changes. And so when we're willing to go uh, to drop the stories, you know, the convincing stories, and go to that vulnerability, things begin to change. And the real work then, if once we get this pattern of going from the gross to the subtle, is to speed it up. And the way we speed it up is we begin to be very familiar at our typical ways of being locked on the level of the story. For some, for some of us, it's like going to involve some sense of being a victim, because that is how we've been conditioned to revolve with aversion, with pain. We seemingly protect ourselves from pain by repeating a story of being the victim. Other people close down and distract themselves, so they're in some state of denial. And their story is going to be about how everything's fine. Oh, it's fine. You know, no, it's not perfect, but you know, we're fine. It's fine. Other people are passive aggressive, you know, and that's their particular pattern. And they're basically saying, I'm not mad, but you can't make me do anything, you know, kind of like, I'll resist, you know, I'm not going to be part of this, but I'm fine. And so there's sort of passive resistance to everything, but not owning that we're angry. So there are many flavors of aversion that the story in the mind doesn't include the thought, I'm angry at you, or I'm angry at me, or I'm angry at this. But yet at the same time, the story is all about there's some kind of resistance or some kind of very tight holding going on. And then, of course, there's all the more active forms of aversion, sort of self-righteousness, or you know, I'm personally, I'm God's personal assistant, you know, and I've been charged with sort of making sure that people get the consequences to their bad actions. You know, it's my job to tell you you've done something wrong. It's my job to judge you and to see what you're doing wrong and to correct. And, and so there are so many different versions of this um, critical judging mind and uh, putting people in their place. So there's lots of variations, but the more we know how our mind typically reacts to pain, this pain in the heart, then we can catch it. And we can immediately, like when we see it, when we see that we're being impatient on the highway, we can immediately remember, the heart's probably hurting. Let's check. You know, and we look, oh yeah, it hurts. It's not about the traffic. I mean, traffic's not pleasant. Being stuck in traffic, that's not pleasant. But the big storm and the endless thinking, that's not about the traffic. It's about the heart hurting and thinking somehow that thinking in the way that we're thinking is going to protect us from the pain in our heart. But it doesn't actually protect anybody. It just causes more problems. So when we recognize the, the uh, predictable patterns, because we've been observing our mind for a while, then we can go very quickly to, oh, there's probably something else going on. Let's open to how it is in the heart right now. Oh, there it is. The heart hurts. Can this be okay? So we, we're going right to that direct information, that direct data. Oh, it hurts. There's this pain. And we're learning to sort of rest in it, respect it. 
as like relevant information for whatever's going to be next, however we're going to respond in the moment. And it's so interesting when, when we can do this, when we can very quickly catch, see the predict, predictable, aversive pattern, drop down into what's subtle, how the heart is, the out. The, the maybe ironic, maybe paradoxical thing is our response in the moment is just so much more effective, skillful. Even though we're not thinking about how to be skillful, how to be like handle this finally, to, to do it right. But just because we're in touch in a deeper way, in a more subtle way with what's actually happening, our response, what we say, what we do, whether we speak up or whether we keep quiet, whether we leave the room, whether we stand our ground. So it's not about being passive or sort of not doing what needs to be done in the moment. But it's coming out of an authentic connection with what's happening in the heart. And you'll find, and this is for each of us to develop confidence that this is true, not to just believe it, but to see, do we in fact become more skillful when we're connected? And of course, we don't, you know, we don't like doing this because it means becoming, in a sense, more exposed or more vulnerable. This is from James Baldwin, somebody that Jack Kornfield quotes in his chapter that's on aversion in the book Wise Heart. James Baldwin says, most people discover that when hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So we have to, like what allows us to make that transition from the surface, the reactive pattern on the surface, to feeling the pain is recognizing that that pain of hate, that pain of the heart being bound up, that this seemingly <clears throat> this exposure is actually the appropriate way forward in life. Being vulnerable <clears throat> is a position of strength and wisdom. It's not a problem being vulnerable. It's actually being in alignment. We are, as human beings, as sensitive creatures, we are fundamentally exposed and vulnerable. So to, to be disconnected from that is a, a place of weakness, instability, and suffering. And the, the path of awakening, which is a path of real freedom and liberation and happiness, deep <coughs> resonant happiness, but it's not the happiness of being disconnected from the pain in life. It's the path of being right in the middle of vulnerability, right in the middle of exposure, right in the middle of pain and joy, but finding a kind of space or ease or wisdom that can hold it all, that can be right in the middle and not confused by the sensitivity, not confused by pain, not confused by joy. Right now, as human beings, the great tragedy is we live in a world of joy and pain and we live where we're conditioned to be confused by joy and pain. Our whole world is made up of moments of joy and moments of pain, and we're afraid of both. We get tight around joy, but things are really beautiful, right? Isn't that true? We get really tight, but things are beautiful. Rarely 
<coughs> I mean, if we're fortunate, it, hopefully it happens, but it seems pretty rare that we actually relax in a you know, in clear, relaxed way when we're experiencing a lot of joy. And the same with pain, of course, even more so. We tighten up around pain. I want to save some time to, for people to share. So maybe I'll just read this last passage in Jeff Hornflip's book. Um, and I've been talking about the wise heart. He's got a couple paragraphs near the end of the chapter on aversion. He says, true strength meets the vulnerability of life with caring and courage. True strength knows that there are two great powers in this world. The first is those who are unafraid to kill, and the other is those who are unafraid to love. So when we stay on the level of this story, we're on that level, we're, we're dependent on the power of not being afraid to kill. Now, probably we're not going to actually kill other human beings, but we're going to throw other human beings out of our heart. So that's a form of killing putting somebody in a box, you know, you're Muslim, or you're black, or you're, you know, rich, or you're this, or you're that, you know, you're bad, you're elitist. So we throw people out of our heart, and there's a certain power in being able to sort of condemn people, throw them out of our heart. And we get addicted to that power. So we have to wean ourselves from that power and open to this other power, which is the power to be unafraid to love. And remember, love is just the capacity to be intimate, the capacity to connect, to connect with pain, to connect with joy. That's another power. That's more powerful than the power to condemn, to kill. But it takes, you know, it's like a, climbing a ladder, you know, you've got to let go of one rung to put your hand on the, the next rung. And it, this is the thing, it's scary for us to let go of our condemnation, our self-righteousness, our denial, you know, all the ways we actively express, get caught up in hate and fear. It's a real act of faith, initially at least, to let go of that and to be sensitive to the pain, and to realize the heart that can be with pain, that can be with beauty, that can love, that can accept. He goes on and he says, even in situations of great danger, true strength chooses love. Martin Luther King Jr. demonstrated the strength of this love in the darkest hour, saying, we will meet suffering with soul force, unquote. True strength is what the Irish Catholics and Protestants and the Palestinians and Israelis will need to end their cycle of, cycles of violence. It will take courage for them to truly feel the weight of each other's suffering, courage to honor the other side's fear, fears of annihilation and loss of land, culture, and dignity. Yet until their pain and fear are held in a wise way, the cycles of hatred will continue. True strength also brings clarity like a sword that cuts through illusion. It's called discriminating wisdom. When we're not locked in blame or struggle, we can see things as they are. We can, as William Butler Yeats 
says, make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. When needed, we can be fierce and strong, wielding the sword of clarity. Liberated from anger, we can speak the truth fearlessly. At the same time, we are free of ill will, so our actions care for the welfare of all. So I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes. Any questions you have about this topic of aversion or comments of what you've learned, looking at your own aversion in life, what seems to be in the way of opening or understanding your aversive patterns? What comes to mind? Any thoughts? Yeah, say your name, please. no small thing. You may never understand it conceptually, but absolutely you can understand it directly. Because how many ideas have arisen in our mind since we were born? You know, millions for sure, right? Well, that, was, that means there, were, uh, there was at least a million opportunities to see directly where the thought was arising from. Because right? where is it happening? What's happening right here in the moment? Whatever the next thought is, it's arising right here. So instead of dealing with that kind of question from an intellectual point of view, get interested directly in the experience of a thought arising, anger arising, aversion arising. It's a very relevant investigation. But you have to be, you have to drop the expectation, like where you think it's arising, because that will prevent an honest insight. And when you actually see where a thought, an idea arises from, it will be a transforming experience. Just like the, another relevant question is, where have all those thoughts gone? You know, how many times have we been angry? Where has all that anger gone? 
times when we've been happy. Where has all that happiness gone? So, so many things, millions of states of mind have ceased. Where the hell have they gone? You know? Where have they come from? This is so amazing that we're not interested in this question. <laughs> and seeing this directly, not sort of having a philosophical view of what the answer is, but seeing it directly totally transforms the life that we're living. Because it, what we come to understand, now I'll give you a concept, but you can then, hopefully it will inspire us to look more and more. But what we come to understand that this arising of thought and the cessation of thought, or you could say the arising of emotion and the cessation of motion, or anything, the arising of any state or experience and the cessation of that state is just the movement of nature. But when we directly see that it's a movement of nature, we're also directly seeing, clearly knowing it's not self, because we're seeing it's nature, not self, not Aaron thinking this thought, not Aaron deciding not to think this thought anymore, which is what we casually assume. Oh, I must have, for some reason, decided to get angry or to think this thought. But that's not actually what we observe when we are mindful and observe thoughts arising and thoughts ceasing. We see it's just like a breeze has come down the hill side, you know? It's just like that. And when we directly see that, like I, I have this ringing insight that happened, you know, a while back, 15 years ago or so, you know, where I just saw doubt arising in my mind. But I saw it as a movement of nature. And it's like my experience of self-doubt has never been the same since that simple moment of seeing doubt arising as it actually is, as opposed to, oh, I have doubt. You know, where we take it personally. So we're immediately interpreting what's happening instead of honestly, in a non-judging, non-interpreting way, seeing things as they are. So thanks for bringing that up. It's really relevant. The thoughts that come to mind about aversion or just practice generally? Yeah, and then Zach. You can go first. Uh, my name is Avery, and this is my first time here, so all, oh, these, welcome. Things, all of these words are pretty new, but also very familiar with just like, developing my own wisdom as I get older. But one thing I was hoping you could elaborate on is what she meant by connecting when you breathe. When you breathe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just generally about connecting. It's sort of the, the sort of initiating the process of mindfulness leading onward to insight or wisdom. So the, the, what's in the way of wisdom and mindfulness <coughs> generally is we're not connecting with the present moment. So there's like a tumbling forward thought after thought, but there's no clear recognition that a thought is arising. So connecting, we usually use something relatively gross like the sensations of the body sitting, or the sensations of the breath coming and touching the nostrils, or the movement of the abdomen as the breath comes in, and the movement of the abdomen as the breath goes out. So we use a very concrete experience, physical experience often, to learn how to connect, to take the knowing quality of the mind, what we call attention, right? 
the mind that knows, attention, knowing, you know, the sensations of the air touching the skin of the nostrils. So that simple moment of knowing, and we're practicing not interpreting the experience of touching. So what is the experience of touching, or what is the experience of movement as the belly expands, or the experience of hearing? So whatever the particular object of awareness is, what is the experience in and of itself without the mind coloring it through some interpretation? And if the mind does attempt to interpret, you know, then we see that that's just a thought. You know, what is connecting with a thought is knowing that a thought is just a thought instead of being confused by the content of the thought. Thoughts are harder to connect with because when my mind that knows, the attention knows a thought, we almost immediately get seduced by the content of, content of the thought and forget that it's just a thought being known. Does that make sense? So that's why we often begin the training with more uh, visceral experiences. Hearing, sensation is generally what people begin the practice with. To understand what it is to connect, and then the secondary skill is to sustain that simple, relaxed, clear presence, that direct, raw, bare presence. Right? So we need to connect and then sustain it. Then when they're sustaining, we say there's a continuity of mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness unavoidably leads to insight, meaning we're going to learn something about the nature of experience that we haven't learned before. Because we've been prevented from learning because there hasn't been a continuity of mindfulness. The mind's been dissipated, distracted, scattered. And so what we know is mostly influenced by our interpretations, our ideas about things, our concepts. But when we connect, and sustain, we have a continuity of mindful attention, then insight is unavoidable. And the more insight we have, the more our whole view, our whole way of being becomes transformed. Sometimes in big changes, more often gradually, slowly, over time. Years of practice, decades of practice. The false living under false notions become transformed, and we're living in a much more direct, immediate, an authentic way, like our choices, our actions, our words, our thoughts are coming out of a more direct relationship with the present moment than layers upon layers of interpretation and concept. So that's a short sort of version of this sort of fundamental question, like what are we, what is mindfulness is basically what you asked. Thanks and welcome again. Jack, did you have a question or comment? Sure. A little louder maybe. Not clinging to forms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that image too can be very useful for people to see, especially the movement of emotion, in the same way that we'd see weather patterns, that as natural, unavoidable movements. And sometimes the mind is dark and stormy, heavy, wet, damp. Right? Sometimes it's you know beautifully clear, like on a cold winter morning when there's a sort of pristine quality. And it's the same with our mind. These 
different patterns that blow in and then blow out. I think Zach, other thoughts come to mind from folks? Yeah. Uh, my name is Jason. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about aversion that I struggle with is um, uh, every day, driving through traffic is a good example. <coughs> drive too slowly, they away, just that or the other thing. But aversion or feeling anger or feeling hurt, there has to be an object of that hurt, the concept of the self. Yeah. The notion of the self, and it's only, it, it really seems real when you're feeling hurt. But then when I'm thinking, where is my, where is the self located? And it tends to be a collection of notions, thoughts, stories, that sort of thing. Where is it located? Here, 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 here. When I start to look for it, it disappears. Yeah. yeah. But it's there when I'm driving down the road and getting angry. Well, it's basically there when you're not doing the work of mindfulness, because you're not, because the mind is on the surface of basically living out of thought instead of a more direct relationship. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a, that's a powerful teaching in and of itself. Just to recognize that is a deep insight that anger depends. Basically, any afflictive state of mind, afflictive state of mind, not just anger, depends on subject and object. Dualism, subject-object, you know, there's somebody who's bad or there's somebody I really want or something I really want. And without that split, when we're just connecting and sustaining, we lose dualism. There's just this. There's not this and that. It's just this. And so it's hard, it's impossible actually, for afflictive states to arise because it depends on the split, me and you, good and bad. But when we're fully present, there's no good and bad. It's just this. And this is the transformation with pain. We start, we react to the pain with all this thinking and reactive patterns because we believe it's bad. But when we actually turn our attention to the pain, we transform our relationship to pain. It's just pain. It's just sensation or just intensity. It's just whatever it is. But we can be fully, wholly there with it and we don't need the bad guy, you know, or the good guy. We don't need to split it up in that way. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Let's see if anybody else before we end. I think actually we need to end here, Zach. It's 9 o'clock. So let's seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together.